0: I know most of you, not all of you, everyone's familiar with the Declaration of Independence. And when I mention that, let me just start out by asking you this, what image goes through your mind? For nearly everybody, one of the first things is it's going to be a name, a name that pops up. And that name is none other than John Hancock. Because we remember in the midst of when this was happening and these founding fathers realized we're going to set a new government and a new path, that uh, it was risky business. And he made clear, I'm putting my name out there, and I'm going boldly so that everyone will know. And we're so grateful that they did. Because because they did so, we now have a new nation. But let's remember, if they had failed, that would have been considered treason, and they would have been killed. Their names would have incriminated them. And I'm not sure that it can be proven, but it was Ben Franklin, supposedly, that made this quote when he said, Gentlemen, we must hang together, or surely we will hang separately. And they, you get a picture or an idea, at least, of the gravity of the situation they knew they were entering into when they took these actions. Sticking their necks out to establish a new government, that, ladies and gentlemen, was risky business, and they were willing to do it. And so to this day, we commemorate and we remember those names that are at the end of that document because of it, and we're glad that they did. We're looking at the book of Ezra In your Old Testament and it's in the second chapter of Ezra that you find there another list of names a whole lot of them and while we can't really put faces to the names they're kind of like avatars to us right we we can't make out the image but we at least know what their names were called and while the chapter doesn't exactly make for the most riveting storyline it does show us something about the message that God wants to give us in and through this book as a whole you'll recall, we looked at it last week and we saw that it begins in which Cyrus, who is the new reigning leader of the known world, has taken over. They conquered the Babylonians, the the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so Cyrus walks into Babylon and he gives a mandate and he says, all of you that are Jews, you're free. You can now go back to your homeland. And let's just realize, you know, how significant that is. Their homeland was 800 miles away. There's a long distance that they were all going to have to travel together. Most of these people had been born in Babylon. Now, don't dismiss that also, most of them. It was their ancestors, by and large, that had become POWs about 70 years before. Now, let that sink in, 70 years. When I mention that, only a very small minority of you were around 70 years ago. In fact, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if you remember when Dwight Eisenhower was president, or the Korean War had just ended... Or if you remember Jonas Salk taking that vaccine for polio and giving it to his family first in order to protect them and thus transform the world in eradicating polio. Mount Everest had its very first successful ascent there with the two gentlemen, Hillary and Norgay. And the double helix structure of DNA had finally been discovered. But the biggest one of all, Elizabeth II was crowned the Queen of England. 70 years ago. If you remember that, raise your hand so we can just see how old you are. (laughs) All right, there's a couple of you. There's a couple of you back there. These kinds of things, I think for most of us, they're kind of lost on us. If we didn't grow up, if we didn't go through the events of the day, unless in some way your life was shaped, was altered by them. And then you most certainly do. And for the Jews, again, these were vague memories that they had about a homeland and about a temple in the city of Jerusalem. For most of them, thinking back on something like that was probably more traumatic than anything else. And so as a result, their lives just kind of entered into the new rhythm where they lived, just like it does for most of us. And so life continues on as it always has. And before long, you've got children that are having weddings. You've got birthday parties graduations that happen you've got gender reveal parties even then it just happened to be on the day the child was actually born but uh, all of these things were happening and again life had its rhythm Uh, but now a massive opportunity for change this is what has arisen to go back to their homeland to go back to the very land that God had promised to give them but let's recognize the tension that they had to have felt and getting that um, permission to be able to go back. First of all, you're gonna travel in that day, it isn't like us getting on I-95 or I-81 and just driving. I mean, you could argue that's dangerous in and of itself. But in this day, it was a whole lot more dangerous to travel. The area that they were going to had been utterly devastated. There's just not a lot left for them to go to. And it would mean starting their lives over and taking on really the hard path be a hard way. In fact, let's just make this personal. What would cause you to leave this area today? You would say, well, it better be something big because in order to leave right now, I've got to leave my home. I've got to leave the people that I have uh, associated with. Maybe in some cases for some of you, it would be leaving family. You're leaving your job, your employment, your church, your friends. And what if the destination was Western Oklahoma, right? No business, no promise, no plants are growing there, no high-speed internet, more than likely, you'd say, no, there better be a good reason in order for me to pack up and to go and to endure something like that. So what about for Israel? There was a reason. It was a very big reason, and that was God, and it was their worship of him through the temple. Now, remember, the temple, this is the centerpiece, right? Right? This is the essence of worship for them, for the Jewish faith, because it's here where God made the provision that they can actually have peace with God when sacrifices were offered up on behalf of their sins. And because of that, they then could enter into the presence of God. They could have fellowship with God. But for now, for 70 years, there hasn't been a temple. It was utterly devastated. Babylon destroyed it. And Israel doesn't have permission to just go offer sacrifices wherever they feel like. So for 70 years, this has not been happening. And everyone recognized you need the people of God to be in the land of God for the worship of God to bring about the kingdom of God. And if you don't have those things in place, the kingdom of God is on hold. And they knew that. And so to not have the Jew in Jerusalem was to, was to have everything on delay. Well, to rebuild the temple, this was going to be, this is going to be one of the highest most religious significant events for all of them in their lifetime. And it was only going to be those who were willing to look higher than merely the comforts that they could have today, those who would be willing to allow their lives to be interrupted from the plans that they had to now step into this new transformative plan in which they would go and repopulate the land and build the temple anew. So there was a reason for going. And so today we're going to look at that in Ezra, beginning in chapter 1 of the book beginning of 1, five. So I'm going to read, but I'm not going to read everything because if you've already read Ezra 2, you'll know why. But I am going to ask if you would to stand and we're going to work our way through parts of it and I'll be skipping parts of it. So Ezra chapter 1 beginning in verse 5, remembering that Cyrus has given the decree that the people could leave and go back to the land of promise. We pick up with these words. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. If you got a pen, that's a sentence worth underlining. God moved in their hearts. And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given as a freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. Now, remember that. These articles are brought out and they're accounted for because this is going to come back later on in the book as we go through it. Well, in the passage, count several of those items, and so I'm going to skip over that, and let's go all the way down to verse 11. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400, and Shazbazar brought them all up, the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. In chapter 2. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his city. And these came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah. That's not the one that the Bible book is named after, by the way. Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. And then the author begins to take these groups of people, and he organizes them in groups according to families. And that's verses 3 through 35. And then you get to verse 36, and you get the names of the priests who were going to return. You skip to verse 40, and you get the Levites who are going to return. Because remember, if this book is about getting worship right, then you've got to have the people that God has established in the temple going back to do this, and that's the Levites and the priests. And then in verse 41, you've got the singers and the worship leaders. And you'll see the name there, Asaph. By the way, interesting bit of trivia about the name Asaph. If you take that in Hebrew and you transliterate it into English language, it is Tom Gossage just thought you'd like to know. Skip to verse 61. Of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. And these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them, they shouldn't eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. And so after totaling the people, we skip to verse 68. Some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. And according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 silver minas, and 100 priestly garments. And now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Father in heaven, as we pray each week, we know that all scripture is inspired, and this passage is meant to work in our lives as well. I pray that you would speak to us and minister to each one where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So again, after God had opened the door and said, you guys can go back now, we've got roughly about 50,000 people who would go back into the land, and they said, let's roll. And yet, there's a lot of others who said, no, we can't do that. We can stay, and they purposed that they were going to help finance those who would go back. Now, let's mention something. This doesn't mean they were lesser believers, that they were lower, a lower caste uh, of Jews, Not at all. In fact, it didn't long after this time frame, the book of Esther and the events of Esther happened. And you see, Mordecai has been one of these key people in the scriptures, and he's never never chastised for not having gone or made an effort to go to Jerusalem. So not everyone had been led to actually go, but all had been led to take part in some way, shape, or form. And Cyrus made a point to give them back the temple articles that Nebuchadnezzar had taken, at least the ones that hadn't been destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant was gone. But these other items, they could take back with them to use once again. Because remember, if worship is paramount, we want to do it right. And the key people that are mentioned here, you'll see, are going to be the priests and the Levites. And these are the ones that the book of Exodus, the books of Leviticus, both highlight in particular. And these are the ones whom God has established to be his servants in the temple. The Levites who are descendants of Aaron, they can be priests. But if you're only a descendant of Levi, then you can be a Levite and serve in the temple. But the principle being that when God says only certain people can do the job that he's appointed them to do, that means only certain people can do the job that he's appointed them to do. This is the way it works. And so they were gonna start things right. They weren't gonna compromise here. They were going with the revelation that they had received, with what God had declared in the Torah, in their Old Testament. And they said, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to work by pragmatism, and we're not going to work by politics, trying to make people happy. We're going to make God happy. So what does he want? By the way, this, this is, gives me time for a little bit of a segue, but I think it's important because this helps us regarding a contemporary issue that we have to deal with today. Because I've been asked before, does Blue Ridge? Why doesn't Blue Ridge have women pastors and women elders? Why don't we do that? Well, let me tell you some of the knots. Why don't we? Um, excuse me, I misspoke on that. We don't have we have purpose not to have women as elders and pastors. It has nothing to do with the abilities of a woman. All right? got to make that clear. we got women in this church that can run ExxonMobil. You know, they can do some amazing things. we got women in this church that can teach to an incredible degree. Take Bill Nye, the science guy, and he can learn a whole lot from a whole lot of you if you were in front of him. But the reason we don't have women as pastors and elders is because of revelation. It's because of what has God said. And God has established an order. And he did in the Old Testament, but it didn't expire with the Old Testament because it gets reiterated in the New Testament. Through the Apostle Paul, both in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 and in Titus 2. And God has set this up because, according to him, it's part of his created order. That there are roles that he wants men and women to hold, and in some cases, not hold. And so God has set it up that way. So we don't set this up because we got to set up some sort of patriarchal thing. We don't set it up this way because, you know, as men we're intimidated if a woman a woman should somehow get in a position of authority like that. Not at all. It's because this is what God has established. And I liken it to this. If you take, if you take the sun and the moon, both of them are created by God. Both of them have a purpose my God. You've got the sun over here. It's meant to bring light and to bring heat. And through it, we can find photosynthesis and and help plants. And over here, you've got the moon. And through the moon, while it doesn't generate light, it's meant to reflect light. And that's a gift of God because then that means in the nighttime we can sleep. We've got a light if we need it, but it doesn't overpower us like the sun does during the day. And through the moon, you know, you've got a way to help the tides. And it's all part of God's created order. And so it's the same thing with the roles of men and women. God has established an order, and he has a purpose for each of them. And so we uphold that because that's what he has declared and what he stated. And that means we will necessarily, are we going to take some heat from the culture over this? Everybody say, yeah. (laughs) Yes, we will. Because it doesn't align with how the culture thinks. And yet, this is what God has made his declaration, his statement. So if we align with him, folks, can we go there? You bet. And this is why we go in this direction, where God leads through his clearly spoken revelation. And these people were dealing with the exact same thing. Here you've got these Jews coming back into the area. It would have been real easy to pick old Jim Bob here from the tribe of Zebulun and say, man, this guy, I mean, he's an incredible butcher, and we need someone who can do the sacrifices. He knows how to handle a heifer. You know, let's get him in there because he can do this. And on top of that, he's an amazing teacher, and he could probably teach a whole lot of people as he does this. What would be the problem with that? It's not what God established. It's not from the tribe of Levi. It would be from some other. So they had to go with God said with what God said and work from that point. And we get the names of the ones that they knew were of the tribe of Levi. Those who could be priests and those who could only be Levites. And it shows us something here, folks. God is a whole lot more concerned about holiness than he is about efficiency and pragmatism. He's all about his holiness. Y'all remember the story in the Old Testament when Saul, he 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 does what God commands and he goes out and he attacks a group of people and he collects all these animals and he's supposed to destroy them all. And then when Samuel comes up and talks to him and is saying, hey, what, what's with all these sheep? And he says, well, the people really want them. And by the way, don't you think they would make some pretty awesome sacrifices? And the answer, it was... To obey is better than sacrifice. It isn't about what can you produce for God, what can you think up. Instead, it's what has God said, not what do you think. Verse 40 shows us that of those Levites that were returning, note this, there's only 74. Why do you care about that? Well, stop and think. We're talking almost 50,000 people are coming back. Only 74 are going to be able to work inside of the temple itself. The priests, it seems like here, we got about a dime a dozen. You know, they could find their lineage to Aaron, but the Levites, not as many of them. And all of them means, all, what this means is that all those Levites, uh, you can bet they were going to have to be taking on a whole lot of night shifts. Because we got this much work, but we only got this many people. And we can't just parse it out to whoever we feel like it. It's going to have to be the ones to whom God has assigned and chosen. And when these went, they were forsaking a lot of things. Levites, they weren't allowed to own land. They were assigned particular areas and regions where they would go and where they would abide and live. And they sacrificed all these things so that they could sacrifice for God on behalf of his people unto him. And so all of this comes about because proper worship is meant to be established. And, folks, that's what this book is all about, obedience And proper worship. In fact, I could summarize it by saying it's about obedience over expedience. And these were going to step up to the need. They signed the dotted line. They were ready to go as God had established. And so speaking of obedience over expedience, you see in verse 59, you got some guys who couldn't prove their Levitical heritage. And so it isn't that they're excluded from going on the trip, but they are going to be excluded from certain components of worship. And of ministry, in fact, you've got there in verse sixty-one this one guy. His name's Barzillai. His name means Iron Man. You know, I've I've noticed this lately with a lot of young people that some of the new names that are coming up are old names for children. People are going back with like Boaz and Ezra and all this. Hey, Barzillai would be an awesome name for your son. He's what's his name? Iron Man. That's who my son is. Well. Apparently, he's of the priestly clan, but there's a problem. He's got no birth certificate to prove it. Now, there's another Barzillai. This was a few hundred years before. And this Barzillai was the Gileadite, and he was marked in history. God's word commemorated him because of what he did for David. David was getting kicked out of Jerusalem because his son Absalom was usurping, taking over the the throne. David's now on the run. And as he goes, he encounters Barzillai, the Gileadite, and this guy gave him food which would have been seen as an act of treason. And this guy escorted him across the Jordan River to make sure that David got out safe. And now looking back in history, people have commemorated this guy, Barzillai the Gileadite. You can't help but think people would name their children Barzillai after all this. Well, this guy marries a woman who's a descendant of that Barzillai, and he has the same name, but he can't find the connection to the priestly tribe. And as a result, they look at this and they go, gosh, it seems like he would be great for this role, but we can't prove it. And so as a result, he doesn't step into this role. We have to keep a purity of our worship and do exactly what it is that God has called us to do. So he didn't get instilled in the role. And yet he goes and people are ready to go with him to move where God told them to move. But they weren't going to do it at the expense of the purity of the worship before God. So remember that. What they're saying here is the ends do not justify the means if the means are going to be in conflict with the clearly revealed word of God. You can't go there. But can we all just acknowledge the temptation that they all would have felt? And anybody who's been in ministry, you have wrestled with this temptation as well. So few so few, with so little, and yet they're called by God to step forward and to go. And they were ready. They were all ready in that place. And now it's time to rebuild the temple. And it's like God has taken all these, all these people, if you view them as sort of like materials to build something, they are key materials. They're going to do it right. You know, whenever I go to Home Depot and I want to buy something and I need some studs, I don't just go and pick eight studs and throw it in my cart. I take them out each one I look because half of them go like this. They've got a hard bow in them. And I put that one aside because I want the ones that are straight. And that's exactly what God has done. He has these people who said, we're going to be straight in alignment with what God has said. And God says, on that, I can build. And I will build my temple. And they were ready to be used. And so everything they're doing here, it's in keeping with a sense of national repentance. Because remember, Israel was put into exile because they didn't do this. They didn't purpose to heed and to obey God. And they did what they thought was best and what they thought was right. And it got them sent away. And these said, not this time, not this time. We're going to do it right. And so they would live in a manner that showed acts in keeping with that kind of a repentance. And God would use them. Do you not see now why this book is so timeless for all of us? Because this is, this is what really ministers to all of us in our day. Because their challenge is also our challenge as well. In fact, it's every single generation of believers' challenge that they'll face. Especially anybody who's going to strive to go out and to do the work and the will of God in a new place. Or to do a new work in an old place. you got to do it right. And every one of us must come to the point where we're going to ask the same question. How can God use us to make a significant impact on the world in which we live and where he has us in this moment and it's in that moment we have to commit ourselves to do what others fear to do but we won't because we'll trust him and we got to stand and have to be ready ready to stand in a hostile sinful world as a community of believers who dare to raise up a new standard for God be ready to go Where God points us to go, ready to do what he's commanded, no matter what and how anybody feels about it, we'll be aligned with that. And you know, for some of you, let me just throw a few things out for you to consider to make this a little bit more personal. Because for you, maybe being ready to move means you need to do something that God has clearly revealed in his word. Something like, oh, I don't know, forgiveness. And you don't want to forgive. But God's made it clear where I want you to go is to be ready to forgive or vice versa. You need to confess and ask forgiveness, but you don't want to do it. I don't think I'm the only person who ever feels that way. You don't want to do it because what if they use that against me? And yet, what does God say? No, no, no. This is what I'm calling you to do. You pursue that kind of a forgiveness with others. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's uh, repentance. There's a sin out there. You know, you continue to wrestle with it, but you haven't wrestled with it well because you haven't confessed it and you haven't asked God to help you to let those things go. And God's made it clear, you need to let it go, but you won't do it. And so, I don't know, it could be anything from pornography. It could be an acid tongue that you have given to fits of rage and anger, a hypersensitivity to control over all things, and you're not trusting God. And he's saying, that needs to change. And you gotta be ready, ready to go. And here's a big one submission. And every man, when I say that, nudges his wife. You hear that, wife? Submission? No, 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 no. Talk to you men. What about submission to your authorities, to the boss? Will you give in to what the boss requires of you? Now, I'm not talking about when it's moral matters. I'm talking when it's just matters that we really don't wanna do. We don't like submitting to other people or the government authorities. What will you do then? Are you ready to go where God has commanded you? That's why we took on that verse from Isaiah 46 to memorize. And I'm going to continue to present it to you, to challenge you to memorize this in particular, because it's our reminder that God is going to oversee everything in the direction that he ultimately will see it. He's going to establish the ends, but the means is the part where he's going to use you. And you and I can't figure out the ends, but we do know what the means are. And the means are obedience. What has God said? Then I'm going to be faithful in that. But maybe for others of you, it isn't something specific in God's word. Maybe it's something a little bit more open, less specific, more related to just God's direction for you. You feel God tugging on you, pulling you in a direction to say, this is a ministry I really want you to think about and to consider. I want you to be considered think about being a part of this. Or maybe even like some of the people that were in this text, it's sort of like, you've got funds, Maybe there's a way that you can help fund some of the ministry that's happening over here. And God's working and tugging on your heart to say, let that money go into my kingdom for these purposes. And then there might even be a handful of you where God might be tugging on your heart to enter into full-time ministry. And that scares you to death. Because what will I have to give up? Will I be content to show up at my high school reunion instead of in a Mercedes, a used Yugo? And I've given up that reputation for God's sake. But I I don't know that I want to do that. Well, folks, if God has led you in that direction, if God's calling you there, this is where you want to go. You want to be ready. Maybe it's just finding new ways to share your faith and not to be flashy, to draw attention to yourself, but to really present to people the gospel and the truth of God for their sakes and for their souls. What is it exactly for you today? And that's, I'm, I'm bringing it at the individual level, but let's not forget at the corporate level. At we as a church, we have to wrestle with these things too, to say what has God put before us? And particularly when I think of discipleship and evangelism, that's the clearly revealed word of God. Now, how are we going to take that and be diligent to obey and to see that that happens in and amongst us? Will we be ready to say yes to what's clear to us? Folks, when that happens, we gotta be, we got to be crystal clear about a few things. First, got to commit ourselves to a unity in this faith, just like they were. But we got to be committed to a purity of faith, just like they were. To say, we're going to get rid of just our, solely our ideas if they're in conflict with the Word of God. We're going to go with what God has said and ask God to bless those efforts. In Ezra 2, it shows you the names. God remembers. He not only remembers, he marked them down for all eternity because they were ready. They saw what God was doing, and they began by taking the risk of faith to follow him where he led them to go. I know all of you, and we just had the 9 11 um, remembrances here just uh, recently, and all of you remember the story of United Flight 93. And as it's going over the skies of Pennsylvania, all of a sudden, everybody, the passengers on board realize, okay, this is not going to end well. And they make the determination, we're going to have to do something. And uh, it's the fellow, Todd Beamer, who's on the phone talking with his wife. And it got recorded, and we've remembered it for all time. His last words, when it came time to go and we're going to take this plane over, you remember where they were? Let's roll. Let's roll. And he purposed that we're going to take the action that we know we have to take. And as a result of them doing that, who knows how many lives they saved. They lost their own, but they saved so many others because in that moment, they knew this is what we have to do. Now, if God's given us that, let's roll. And what have we done today? We take their names and we etch them in stone. We put them in memorials so that we all look back and we all remember what they did. Most of us, aren't going to have to do that level of sacrifice within our ministry that we would actually give our lives. We want to be ready to, if God takes us to that point. But for most of us, it isn't going to be that extreme, but it is the question we need to be asking ourselves. If God has given us the next step, are we going to be ready to take it? Our charge? Let's roll. Let's roll.